0: Hello, Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I hope that everyone has recovered from Super Bowl weekend and that you're enjoying a long weekend for President's Day. I know a lot of people don't get to be off, but hopefully you've had a great weekend. I got to watch my nephew play baseball and we spent time outside. We went fishing. So it's been a great weekend. Now today, we are going to go way back to Austin, Texas in 1884. There was a killer targeting the women in Austin. Now the press would end up calling this guy the Servant Girl Annihilator. Or another member of the press called him the Midnight Assassin. Both names kind of stuck. It just kind of depends on uh, how you look him up. But he started out attacking Servant Girls but eventually got bolder and moved on to the prominent women of the community. Now there are all kinds of crazy rumors at the time on who this guy could be and what they could do to stop him. At one point, they said maybe every woman in Austin should be um, given a guard dog or teach them all to shoot and arm them. Also, There was all kinds of speculation on who this guy could be. Some people even started to believe that maybe he wasn't even human at all. Maybe he was a demon or some other supernatural entity. Others were convinced that he had to be a patient who had escaped from the Texas State Lunatic Asylum. And at one point, the authorities in London even considered that maybe the servant girl annihilator could be Jack the Ripper, since the crimes were so similar. And because the Servant Girl Annihilator was never caught, maybe he had hopped on a boat and gone to London because the time frame did work. So before we get into the case, we're going to start with a little Texas history to set the scene for what was happening in Texas at the time. Austin, Texas in 1884 was still fairly small, but It had changed quite a bit since 1838 when it had just been a primitive settlement at the edge of the American frontier. It was populated only by a few farmers in 1838 and a few traders. Most people didn't even know Austin existed. And in fact, it wasn't even named Austin yet. It was called Waterloo. But. When Mirabeau B Lamar, the vice president of the newly formed Republic of Texas, now remember y'all, Texas was its own country for a while before it was annexed into the United States. So at this point, Texas was still its own republic and the vice the vice not vice principal, hello, we're not going back to school. The vice president stopped there during a buffalo hunt and he was so impressed by the city's beauty that supposedly he proclaimed that this will one day be the seat of future empire. Now, later that year, when he himself was elected president of the Republic, he persuaded the Texas Congress that the Capitol should be moved from Houston and placed in Waterloo. So, crude log buildings were built to serve as government offices, a newspaper was started, a church was opened, and Waterloo was renamed Austin in honor of the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, who brought the first settlers to Texas. Austin was beautiful. It was built on a small hill next to the Colorado River, but life was not easy for the new capital. The Comanches still attacked residents. Outlaws were known to rob the town stores and stay coaches, and hogs slept in the streets downtown. It was a rough place to live. It was very much still not settled. So when Sam Houston was re-elected president in 1841, he tried to move the capital back to Houston that was named the town that was named after him. But a group of his supporters, they came to Austin in the dead of the night to take back the government's archives. But Angela Eberly fired a six-pound cannon at the intruders and Other Austin citizens took back the archives, and Austin remained the capital of Texas. In 1845, Texas was annexed by the United States, becoming the 28th state in the Union. But even then, Austin was still considered a dusty cow town with a pitiful wood framed building for its capital. There was no industry. The only thing that was there was saloons, gambling dens, and brothels. It was not considered a high class at all. And until 1871, when the railroad tracks were laid that connected Austin to the rest of Texas, things stayed that way. But by 1880, Texas was experiencing an economic boom, and Austin was reaping the benefits of it. Things were finally starting to change for Austin. The Texas legislature had proved funding to build the University of Texas and a massive new state capitol building that will be 31 feet taller than the U.S. Capitol itself. So, the whole everything is bigger in Texas motto started way back at the beginning. Austin started becoming a respectable city where people wanted to live. By 1884, it had come a long way, and Mayor John Robertson wanted to promote Austin as much as he could. So, now that we've kind of gotten the history part out of the way, let's get back to the case. On December 31st, 1884, a brutal cold front had blown into Austin. No one that time, at that time of the night wanted to get out of their beds. In fact, it was so bad that it was later reported that the storm was so bad that a cowboy was found frozen to death in a pasture sitting upright. Tom Chalmers was lying in bed when he heard a knock at the door and a man call out, help me, help me. But honestly, Tom Chalmers was not interested in getting out of his bed for any reason. Now, Chalmers was visiting his sister and brother-in-law, but they were out of town. And he and his wife were the only people at at the house that night. But the knocking continued and the calling out for help continued. So Chalmers got out of bed and answered the door. Walter Spencer, a black man, was standing at the door barefoot in a nightshirt in the freezing cold. Blood was running down his face from several gashes in his head and he was having a hard time standing. Tom Chalmers told the police that when he opened the door, Spencer said, Mr. Tom, Mr. Tom, for God's sake, do something to help me. Somebody has nearly killed me. Spencer was the boyfriend of the Hall family's cook, Molly Smith. Now, the Halls were Tom Chalmers' uh, brother-in-law and sister, and that was the house he was staying at. Chalmers said Spencer was terrified. He said that someone must have attacked him and knocked him unconsciously. uh, sorry, unconscious while he was sleeping. He said whoever attacked him must have done something to Molly because she was nowhere to be found. He said he had looked for Molly in the back and front yard, and that he had searched up and down the street, but he couldn't see anything in the dark. It was the middle of the night. And remember this was 1884. So there were no street lights or porch lights or any other lights for that matter. You know, lights coming from houses to help light anything. So it was pitch black outside and there was a storm. So there wasn't even any moonlight to help him search. Now the blood from his head wound was pouring into Spencer's mouth and making it hard for him to even breathe. So Tom Chalmers told Spencer that what he needed to do was put a bandage around his head before he bled to death. Now, this is 1884. So a white man... Is not going out into the brutal cold to look for an ima- African American servant girl during the middle of the brutal storm. So he, Chalmers escorted Spencer out the door of the house, out, back out into the cold, cleaned up the blood where he bled on the floor, and just went back to bed. Around 9 a.m. the next morning, the telephone began ringing in the Austin Police Department. The clerk, The police clerk answered the phone and the voice of the hello girl, which was the girl who sat at the telephone company and sent calls to where they were going, told the officer that she was patching a call through to him from Ravy's Grocery. Now, Dr. Ralph Steiner, a surgeon, reported that there was a woman lying near the store and said he needed an officer sent out to take charge. He didn't say what was wrong with the woman. And it's speculated that the surgeon did not want the hello girl who he figured was probably listening in on the line to hear the gruesome details of what happened to poor Molly Smith. They sent Officer William Howe to the scene to find out what happened. But Howe mostly did patrol work, handing out tickets downtown to people who left their ho- their horses unhitched in front of businesses Or who drove their carriages too fast. He also picked up the drunks who staggered out of the saloons. He was not an investigator and he had not assisted with any murders. In fact, he hadn't even seen any murder victims. So this poor guy shows up, finds Tom Chalmers and Dr. Steiner waiting for him. And they directed him to the body of Molly Smith, who was lying in the alley behind the Hall's house. Dr. Steiner said that a servant had found the body when he went outside that morning to collect firewood for him and began screaming at what he saw lying in the alley. This alerted the neighbors who called the police. Now, Officer Howe walked into Molly's house. And he saw two or three pieces of furniture in the room that had been knocked over and a mirror that had been knocked to the floor and broken. The bed, pillows, and sheets were saturated with blood. Blood had dripped off one side of the bed and formed a puddle on the floor. And a bloody axe was lying on the floor next to the foot of the bed. And a bloody handprint was on the wall by the door that led out into the backyard. Hal followed the trail of blood out the door for more than 50 feet before he found Molly lying in the alley. She was lying on her back and her head had been nearly split in two and she had been stabbed multiple times in the chest and stomach. Some of the wounds were so deep that her organs were exposed. Her legs and arms had also been slashed. Blood was everywhere in fact, there was so much blood that it was filling up the ruts in the alley and she almost appeared to be floating instead of laying in the street. Officer Howe went to Ravies and called the police department and requested Sergeant Cheneville be sent to the scene. Chenneville came, bringing his two bloodhounds with him. Now, Sergeant Cheneville was an imposing man with broad shoulders, a thick mustache, and a loud, commanding voice. In fact, one person even compared him to being built like an upright piano. The locals called him Ronnie O'Johnny, and he was known as Austin's most industrious officer. But Chennaville really didn't have any investigating experience either. Most of the murders he investigated were pretty cut and dry. I mean, they usually resulted from a fight in one of the saloons or gambling dens, Plenty of witnesses and the offender still on the scene. Most of the murders he encountered were fights that started and then someone shot the other one. So they were easy to solve and easy to wrap up. Now remember, at this point, the science of criminology had not yet been invented, so there was very little to help him. There were no eyewitnesses or any clues left behind. They didn't know about fingerprints yet, so the bloody handprint was really of no use to them either. If there were any footprints left, it didn't matter because everyone had already tromped through the crime scene and probably messed up any prints that there were of a footprint. So, Cheneville put his bloodhounds on it to see if they could catch a scent and trail someone that might help them catch who killed Molly. But, There was so much blood, the dogs were overwhelmed by all of it, and they just kept walking in circles barking. The press started to arrive, and usually they were a loud and cocky group and talked way too much. But today, even they were quiet. In fact, most of them were trying to keep from vomiting at the sight of what was left of poor Molly. People started to wonder if maybe Molly's boyfriend, Walter Spencer, had actually killed her himself and then injured himself to make it look like he had been attacked. But that idea was quickly dismissed. Spencer was known as a good man who was very kind to Molly. Plus, no one could believe that he would have been able to give himself those kinds of injuries. And Tom Chalmers also agreed that when he opened the door that night, it was genuine that Spencer was scared and he didn't think that he was involved either. Now, an ex-boyfriend of Molly's named William Lynn Brooks fell under suspicion first. He worked at one of the saloons downtown and he was a prompter at the dances for African Americans. He had followed Molly to Austin from Waco because Molly had had Molly had lived in Waco earlier, but she had a son who died at the age of six from an untreated illness. And after that, she decided that she needed a change of scenery. So she left Waco and she moved to Austin. So Brooks followed Molly a short time later to Austin. But by the time he got there, Molly and Spencer had already gotten together. Now it was reported that Brooks was supposedly very upset and had started a fight with. Spencer when he first found out. But according to Spencer and Brooks, they had worked it out and there really was no black bad blood between them. When they questioned Brooks, he denied any um, he denied any accusations that he was involved in this. He said he would never hurt Molly or Spencer. And besides that, He had been prompting at a dance at Sand Hill that evening, and it was two miles from where Molly lived, and that he'd been there till 4 a.m. So the timeline really didn't fit. In fact, a newspaper reporter uh, even reported that he would have had to fly to make it there in enough time and then get back to finish prompting the dance. But Cheneville arrested him anyway. On suspicion of murder and they took him to the holding tank. Now the undertaker for African Americans came to pick up Molly's body and when he tried to pick her up and place her in the coffin, her body and this was uh from what I read in quotes, I guess it was kind of the phrase of the time wouldn't hold together. That was the term they had used. So he had to stop and take a moment to regain his composure before he tried, to pick poor Molly up again. And this time, he scooped up all of her body parts and put them in the coffin and took them to the dead room at the hospital. That's what they called the morgue in, that, in those times. After they left, Tom Chalmers began to clean everything up. He wanted everything to be spotless when his brother-in-law and sister returned home. He wanted it to look like nothing had ever happened. So, of course, if there were any clues left behind in Molly's house, they would have all gone out with the trash when Chalmers cleaned up. Dr. William Burt was the hospital's physician, and he did Molly's autopsy. He recorded Molly's height and weight, and he looked at her hands, fingernails, wrists, and the insides of her upper arms. Then he examined Molly's wounds. He noted that she looked like she had been the victim of an amateur medical operation or an experiment in anatomy. So see where we're already drawn those parallels to Jack the Ripper? Remember, if you're familiar at all with the Jack the Ripper case, which, I mean, I kind of feel like everybody is at this point. They thought that whoever did those killings had knowledge in anatomy and they were compared to surgery. Um, he took a few more notes, but really was unsure what else to do. so he pulled a sheet over Molly's body and he left. During that time, before the establishment of a medical examiner's office, a justice of the peace was required to conduct an inquest into any death that was considered unusual, unexplainable, or suspicious. So the inquest was held before a jury before a jury of inquest, which was what it was called. Now, six male jurors were required to listen to the statements given and decide what they believed the official cause of death was. If the death was ruled a murder, then they also had to declare who they believed committed the murder, and then the Justice of the Peace would issue a warrant for that person's arrest. The jury decided that they thought Molly had been killed on December 30th between the hours of 10 p.m. and 3 a.m., And they said they thought that William Lim Brooks was guilty. Now, Brooks would later be released because it was obvious that he didn't do it. But the police were hoping that it would be an easy conviction and then everything would go back to normal. But, you know, they were wrong. Molly's body was taken to colored ground. That was the name of the cemetery section where African-Americans were buried at that time. A few of Molly's friends came for her funeral. They sang spirituals and said some prayers. And then later that day, the cemetery's caretaker took out his ledger and noted the place of Molly's birth and death. But he couldn't bring himself to write the true cause of Molly's death under the column, Cause of Death. So instead, he just wrote, Broken Skull. And all that was quite the understatement. Things calmed down and everyone began to think that whoever killed Molly had moved on and that it was just a one-time one thing, even though it was horrific and unimaginable. March 2nd came and Texas celebrated its independence from Mexico. A lavish parade was held on Congress Avenue and the granite cornerstone of the new Capitol building was unveiled. The parade lasted for over an hour, and everyone thought that the cloud had lifted from Austin. But one week later, a German servant girl woke up and swore that she saw a ghost standing at the foot of her bed. The girl told police that the man stood there, hidden by darkness, and finally said to her, Your money or your life? The girl screamed, and the man hit her over the head with a hard object that cut her scalp. Now, the homeowner heard her screams and ran to see what was wrong. But by the time he got there, the man was gone and the servant girl was unable to give any kind of description to the police. Four nights after that, an African-American cook was woken up by what she described as a violent shaking of her locked door. When she got up and looked out the window, she couldn't see anybody. No one was there. But an hour later, in a nearby neighborhood, Two young servant girls were woken up by someone trying to get into the door of their servants' quarters were attached to the back of the mansion where they worked. One of the women stepped outside to see who was there, and someone grabbed her from behind and started trying to drag her away. She cried out hysterically, and the person let her go and ran away. Same thing. By the time the owner got there to try to investigate to help the the servant girls, The guy had run off and no one was able to identify him or give a description. Now, the women were so scared that they decided to, instead of stay in their servants' quarters, they would sleep in the kitchen for the time being. Two nights after that incident, an intruder slipped into the servants' quarters attached to the back of a different home. A man... Is the home of a man named Abe Williams. He owned a silk shop that sold fine clothes. Now, again, it's dark. There's no, well, electricity is starting to come around, but most places didn't have electricity. So it's pitch black. It's not like today where there's light even when it is in the middle of the night. But, um... The intruder this time tore the cover off of the servant girl's bed and struck her on the head and the face and then ran away. Now, for a couple of days, the attack stopped. But then on March 19th, there was a tapping on the window of the servant's quarters located behind Colonel J.H. Pope's house. Um where two servant girls named Christine and Clara lived. They were laying in their beds, but they were too scared to move because at this point, the news was spreading fast. that There was someone out there attacking servant girls in their homes. The tapping stopped, but there was a sudden sound of a pistol shot. The bullet came through the window and lodged in the wall. The girl's expectedly started screaming and raced outside and ran towards the main house. But one of the girls, Clara, was grabbed from behind. and but she wasn't able to turn around to see who the man was, but she kept screaming, which brought Colonel Pope out and other people outside also with guns. But they couldn't find the man. He had let Clara go and again disappeared without a trace. Both girls returned to their room and they locked and barricaded the door. But within minutes of this happening, another shot was fired through the window into their room. This time, the bullet hit Christine between her shoulder blade and her spinal column, knocking her to the ground. But fortunately, it didn't hit any of her vital organs, so she did live. In January, a thief entered the house of a family on East Walnut Street, and according to another newspaper article, Took all the eatables. A few days later, a thief threw a heavy piece of wood through the bedroom window of an elderly woman named Mrs. Cope, stole her purse that was lying on the table. But the thing was, is these crimes didn't make any sense. Whoever was trying to break into the servants' quarters seemed way more interested in attacking women or just scaring them. So they didn't think the, whoever broke into the home in January or broke into the elderly lady's house were the same person. Because whoever was committing the other, the servant girl crimes really just seemed like he wanted to scare them or kill them and wasn't interested in taking any of their things. Now, one theory And this was a theory of Austin's white citizens, because remember, at this time, this was right after the Civil War. And so, unfortunately, at that time, African American people were considered way below status than white people. So there was a theory going around that a band of African American men who were mad were attacking these people, these women. But that didn't make sense. Why would they go around attacking other African-Americans? Even though there were some uh, servants from Germany and Sweden, most of these ladies that were attacked were also African-American. So that didn't make any sense. And most of these people were, most of the people in the, uh, black community were unable to read and write. And a lot of these, they were, you know, these people were common laborers or they were in domestic service. And the men were employed as janitors, barbers, porters, carriage drivers, cloakroom attendants, boot blacks, waiters, and bellhops. They, you know, they shoveled coal for the railroads. They worked at the sawmills. They weren't going around cutting people up. That looked like surgeons. They didn't even have any experience in something like that. Now, the the ladies were scared, and um, they had started carrying little bags called mojo bags in their pockets, hoping that it would protect them from whoever this evil person was. In fact, in the African-American community, they started calling the killer the evil one because they were starting to be convinced that he wasn't even a man, but he was a demon or some other kind of supernatural being. But interestingly enough, one of the servants actually said that she did see the face of the, her attacker, and she believed that he was actually a white man. But of course, none of Austin's citizens could even imagine that a white person would do this. I mean, it just made no sense, whatever. Um, they just thought, surely the girl was so scared that she mistook a white man for a black man. But, I mean, that just shows at what the, that just shows the thought process of the time period we were in. At this point, Austin's police department was way understaffed. Um, there were not enough police officers to really even properly patrol Austin But until these attacks started, they thought they were fine. Most of the outlaws had been arrested, sent to prison. And because Austin had become a cosmopolitan area, they didn't have the problems that they used to have. But Major H.G. Lee, the city marshal, requested that the city hire more police officers. But that decision was shot down by the mayor and the city council. Instead, what they decided to do was hire some upstanding citizens to patrol at night. Now, Officer Lee argued the not officer, sorry. Um, Marshall Lee offered argued the fact that he had too few police officers and that this would help them tremendously, even with the betterment of Austin in general. But they told him no and shot him down. Everything they brought to the exposition was grand and over the top. Um, The exposition itself had been bent had been built on a 249-acre former plantation located between downtown and the Mississippi River. And among the structures erected on the site were the horticultural building, the machinery building, the factory building, four buildings to accommodate all the horses, and two buildings to accommodate all the cattle. And there was even an observation tower with never-before-seen electric elevators and an Outdoor Exhibit of Experimental Electrically Powered Streetcars. So, I mean, big deal stuff. He was pulling out all the stops because he really wanted to show off. And in fact, the phrase that everybody's come to know, everything is bigger in Texas, was actually coined at this exposition in New Orleans in, A- in April 1885. They even brought... 125-foot towers that held giant, newly invented electric arc lamps, each of which emitted 36,000 candle power. They created so much light that the exposition's visitors literally could see blades of grass on the lawn at night. And the visitors were very impressed, but for many of them, the lamps appeared to be more like a pointless curiosity than a helpful invention. They even said, Why would anyone want to go to so much expense to light up a city throughout the night? What purpose would that serve? Now, of course, you're going to see later on that they really do come in handy. But at this point, they weren't used to having big lights at night. So what did it matter? Now, on April 27th, things had been calm. So Mayor Robertson decided to disband the temporary extra policemen and, you know, said, we don't need you anymore. So things were calm for two days and then on the night of April 29th, a man broke into a small cabin in the backyard of a home on West Walnut Street, grabbed another servant woman in her bed, covered her mouth with his hands to keep her from screaming and threw her down on the floor and then ran out and disappeared. Then later on the same night, a man entered the servant's quarters of a home on Mulberry Street. The cook that lived there was gone but a female friend was sleeping in her bed. The man grabbed her throat with one hand and held a razor with his other hand and threatened to kill her if she screamed. At that moment, the cook and another woman came into the backyard and saw the door open to her servants' quarters and called out to their friend inside. The man raced out of the door and ran away. But here we go again. It was dark and difficult to see, but one of the women... Said she thought that the man was actually dressed up as a woman and wearing a dress. The next night, someone hurled a large stone into the servant, into the cabin of a servant woman in the backyard of a home on Rio Grande Street, and a neighbor heard the woman's cries and ran outside and shot at a man that he saw running away, but he missed and the man kept running. An hour after that, J. M. Breckenridge, the president of the City Bank was awakened by a noise in his backyard. He looked out the window, and of course, all he could see was darkness. But he saw his cook, who was an elderly black woman, struggling with a man. So Brackenridge opened the window and shouted at him, and he ran off. But a few hours later, either the same man who was fighting with his cook in the yard or someone else came back to the house and rocked the house which at that time was a phrase that police would use to describe someone throwing rocks at, at someone's home. So over the next couple of days, and his officers arrested three more black men, Andrew Jackson, Newt Harper, and Henry Wallace, who were described in newspaper articles as hard looking Negroes. They arrested Jack Ross, another black man who worked as a janitor at the Variety Theater. And also an elderly African-American man who was known around Austin as Old John. Now, Old John had spent some time at the St. Lunasic Asylum after he was heard telling people that he was worth $260 million in gold, which he had recently buried beside the Colorado River. But he was released because the doctors really decided that he was completely harmless. But of course, you know, Surely, maybe the guy who'd been at the state hospital, he'd have, maybe he's the one who's guilty, even though he was elderly and probably not strong enough to have done any of the things to these women in the attacks that happened. I mean, it really just, it didn't make sense, but they were grasping at straws. They had no leads. They had no, they didn't have anything to go on. And they were grasping at straws, hoping if they would just arrest enough people, maybe they'd on accident arrest the right person. But, of course, with the latest round of arrests, the attacks came to a stop again. Now, the weather was nice. People were starting to stay outside. And on the afternoon of May 6th, um, there was a wedding at a house over across town. Now, a 31-year-old servant named Eliza Shelley did not go to the wedding. In fact, she was working that night. And um she'd fixed dinner for the Johnson family, and afterwards she cleared the kitchen, polished the stove and the silverware and went back to her little cabin in the Johnson's backyard where she worked and uh saw her little boys. She had three little boys. 7 the oldest was 7. She fed them their supper, and then they went to sleep. Eliza and the two smallest boys were at the head of the bed, and then the little seven-year-old boy was at the end of the bed. Now, Eliza's husband had, was put in prison in 1884 because he had stolen a horse, and it was kind of well-known around town that she lived alone with her little boys. But that next morning at 6 a.m., just at the break of day, Dr. Johnson woke up, and left for the market to buy groceries for the family while he was gone his wife heard eliza's children screaming and uh crying just at a her words were at a fearful rate now she sent her young niece who was barely a teenager herself out to check on the kids but within a couple of minutes mrs johnson heard her niece screaming also the girl ran back to the main house And collapsed and was so terrified that she wasn't even able to say anything. So, when Dr. Johnson came home from the market, his wife told him what had happened. And so he walked out to the cabin and opened the door. And there in a corner of the room were Eliza's three little boys. And this breaks my heart because these three little boys were stuck in the room. No one went out there to check on them. And no one went to see what was happening. So seven, oldest seven, so the other two younger than seven were in the room, huddled in a corner and on the floor next to the bed, wrapped in a bedspread was their mother Eliza and parts of her brain were oozing out of a gaping wound on her right temple. So Sergeant Cheneville was called again to the Johnson's home, Eliza's bosses. And he walked in the cabin and noticed that both of her trunks had been broken open and her clothes and her things had been scattered all over everywhere, just like Molly Smith's. Now he ordered that Eliza's body be taken out into the backyard where there was better light so they could see. So the police officers moved Eliza's body out into the yard and uh put her on a white quilt. They uh when the quilt was removed from her, they finally got a good look at all of her wounds. And besides the axe wound to her skull, there was a small hole between her eyes that looked as if it had been made by a screwdriver or some other sort of thin iron rod. And then there were several knife wounds up and down her body. Some of them were easily four inches deep. The blade had been plunged all the way into her body and then pulled out, severing blood vessels, muscles, muscle tissue and cartilage, brutal, just like poor Molly Smith. And yet again, everyone stood in the yard, speechless, trying to A, keep themselves from being sick and wrap their minds around what, what they had just seen. Uh, They, you know, they really thought that things, that the person who did this to Molly was gone, but obviously he, he wasn't. Now, again, Geneville's bloodhounds circled Eliza's body just like they had Molly, but the dogs sniffed and then began to bark and ran away. So they were still overwhelmed by the blood and couldn't pick up a scent. So Cheneville went over to speak to Eliza's seven-year-old little boy, and the boy told him that he had been shaken awake in the middle of the night by a man who was wearing a white rag over his face with two holes cut out for eyes. The boy couldn't tell whether the man was black or white, but he thought he might have been white. He said the man asked him where his mother kept her money, and he replied that he didn't know if his mother even had any money. The boy then said the man ordered him to put his head under a pillow and not look again or else he would kill him. The man then told him that he would be on his way to St. Louis the next morning on the first train out. Eliza's son said he went back to sleep and that his two little brothers never woke up and that he had no idea what the man had done to his mother until the first light when he woke up and saw her lying on the floor. Now, the little boy's story sounds crazy. I mean, how in the world could this man come in, brutally attack his mother, And no, and not him or his brothers hear a thing or wake up. I mean, she'd had an ax slammed into her skull. She was pulled off the bed, jammed with some rod between her eyes, stabbed multiple times and then wrapped in a quilt. And then on top of that, all of the items in her room ransacked and strewn all over the place. And not one person woke up. And Why in the world would this guy tell these little kids that he was going to leave on the next train out to St. Louis? But the little boy was questioned multiple times, and he told it the same way every single time. So they believed him. Dr. Johnson was very upset by what had happened to Eliza and talked about what an excellent woman she was and, uh, and said that, He even thought of Eliza and her children as like part of the family, which at that time frame was kind of unbelievable for a white homeowner to say that about one of his African-American servants. It was just almost kind of unheard of. And they even, he even said, I don't even really understand why he, they would have broken into Eliza's house looking for money because it was known throughout Austin that he was actually a rare coin collector and had some coins that dated all the way back to uh, Rome in the year of AD 161. So he said it just made no sense to break in and and do what he did to Eliza. And we're gonna stop there for today. So I hope that you enjoyed our the first part of our Servant Girl Annihilator episode. Come back next week and I'll give you the second, give you the second part. Uh and I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to wrap it up in two episodes. There's so much information and it's so interesting, y'all. And kind of unbelievable that. As famous as Jack the Ripper was, it's kind of fairly unknown that all this happened in Austin right in that same time period. So I hope you'd enjoyed it. I'd love to hear from you. You can uh, email me at Texas True Podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. Uh, please remember to rate, subscribe, uh, leave me a review, and Tell a friend and we'll see you next week. Have a great week. Bye.